0: Well, I want to clear one thing up. I'm sure you're wondering about right now, and that is, I am Reverend Lovejoy, but I have nothing to do with The Simpsons. So, just want to that. okay, let's just move that out of the way right now. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I, I love that you're continuing with Christmas because a lot of times it seems like, okay, once Christmas is done, okay, it's done, it's over, moving on, and there's so much to dive into and enjoy, and at least for me, every year Christmas goes way too fast. I feel like I've just barely begun to really grasp all that it means, and just really thankful for the music that we're singing, and thankful for the scripture reading uh, that we have this morning, which is from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. So Matthew 2, 1 through 12, hear the word of the Lord. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea... his holy word. Have you ever noticed how people age really differently? That became really clear to me once when I was a young pastor in South Carolina. I was an associate in a big steeple church, about a thousand members, lots of people all across the age spectrum. But there was this one older couple that I learned very quickly you needed to be careful of. The man was a successful lawyer, now retired, and he would come into their pew and would sit on the pew. They kind of had a high side, and he was right on the edge. He'd put his arm up, and he'd look like this the whole time that you were up front preaching. Half the time, he'd look like he was completely out. Then his wife, who was also very... She was quite a presence, I'll put it that way. You knew that when you talked to her, you had to speak the right words and in the right way, or you could really tick her off. And I remember one time as I was sitting up in in front as the service was about to begin, they came in a little late, which was unusual for them, and they found a couple of visitors sitting in their pew. And I watched embarrassed as they walked right up to them and said, Excuse me, you are in our pew, please move. And the red-faced visitors, who surprisingly never came back to the church, got up and moved to a different location, and they took their seats. People age differently, not just physically, but spiritually as well. When I began as a pastor at Silver Lake Church here in Los Angeles, there was a woman there named Joy Tinsley, who was on a complete different end of the spectrum from the couple in South Carolina. Joy was born with only one hand, and she was a widower when I met her, and she had a number of physical problems, but her spirit just was soaring. The point that people just wanted to hang out with her and spend time with her. You just felt filled up and built up. It was as if the couple in South Carolina went through life with their hands closed and Joy went through life with just her arms wide open to other people. And I've wondered since noticing the difference between the two of them, I've wondered how can I or what can I do to make sure that as I age, because I am aging, I don't know if you've noticed that, but as I'm aging, how can I make sure as much as possible that I'm aging more like joy than like the couple in South Carolina? And there's one part, one bit of the answer that I've gotten that I think is a critical part of it, and it is that we can become more like joy as we get really good at Christian worship really good at Christian worship. And see, our scripture passage this morning, it's used for all sorts of purposes. Commentators go in all sorts of directions. But I think one of the core points of this story, it is a master class in Christian worship. It doesn't define worship with a series of bullet points. It's not like a self-help guide to worship as we have so many books today. Instead, it tells the story of a time when true Christian worship happened. It's almost like a testimony to a moment when true Christian worship really occurred. And it paints this portrait against the backdrop of a very different and very common form of worship, what I call the worship of power. You see, this story of Christian worship, like all really good stories, is a story that's told in a very unexpected way, but a way that really reveals something that's essential for all of us in the way that we live our lives. The story begins, uh, as we have a little artwork here, with some magi. Now, these magi, it says in the scriptures, come from the east. They're outsiders to the whole Jewish way of life. These people just appear out of nowhere in the Jewish capital city of Jerusalem, and they're asking a very simple but a very powerful question. Where is the one born king of the Jews? Very simple question, but like a pebble thrown into a still pool, that question just begins these ripples all throughout the rest of the story, drawing hidden tensions to the surface. Tensions not just to this passage, but tensions from the whole Bible. The tension between God and his people. Before we go any further, I just want to ask you a question, just something to reflect on for a moment, and that is, what question are you asking as we begin 2019? What's the key question in your mind? Maybe maybe you haven't formulated it yet, but what's the question behind all of your motives, your purposes, your plans for 2019? What is that question that's going to motivate you through this year? Now, in our story, the first ripple of the question of the Magi is the very next sentence. It says, when King Herod heard this, how did he respond? He was disturbed. It strikes you as odd. He was disturbed. But it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because the story tells us right at the beginning of the passage, it begins by saying, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, they come and they ask this question, who's the one who's been born the king of the Jews? See the conflict there? He's asking the king, where's the king that was born the new king, right? You've got some real issues going on there, and King Herod is disturbed. But I don't know if you were listening closely to that passage. Did you hear how that sentence ends? It says, King Herod was disturbed, comma, and all Jerusalem with him. What an odd little phrase to add. All Jerusalem was disturbed by this question. Why would that be? Why would all Jerusalem be disturbed? Anybody have an idea? Sorry? Heard <clears> something. <throat> But why Jerusalem, though? You know, why add all Jerusalem with him? I mean, why not just stop with King Herod was disturbed? You see, Jerusalem is the capital city, right? Capital city of the people of Israel. It's a center for the Jewish people of political, economic, and religious power. And what happens when you're positioned in a position of power? Do you like change? especially not threatening change, right? Like that there's a new power in town, there's a new king in town, that's going to disturb you because you've got your life set up nicely, thank you very much, based upon this being the center of power, King Herod ruling, we're good. Let's not mess with that. And that's what we find in this passage, is that something that's certainly in existence today as well, those who are in power want first and foremost to keep the power, right? So that's the question that's motivating them. How do I keep or build or get more power? But as we look at our passage, we see that the Magi have a really different motive. It's almost like Herod and the capital city of Jerusalem are like that closed fist, like that couple in South Carolina. But the magi come in, and the way they're doing this, it's much more like Joy Tensley. Their hands wide open, right? I mean, again, what they say is, where is the one who's been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come, traveled a long way, left their own country, gone a long way so that they might worship him. Hands wide open. Where is he? We want to worship the king of the Jews. You see, their motive wasn't power. They were asking a different question. Can anybody kind of formulate it? What was the other question, the question the Magi are asking? Put it in some different words. Spiritual inspiration. Spiritual inspiration. They're like, hey, we know something big's going on. Because it wasn't just the Magi, Romans, all sorts of people. When stars showed up that were odd in the skies, that meant something big was going on, right? So so they said, wow, something big's happening. We're going to go find out about it. It was a spiritual journey that they were on. They wanted to find the goal of that spiritual journey, and they were doing whatever it took to get there. That was the big question. That was the motive in their mind. And so what we see as the story continues is that this passage really portrays Christian worship in contrast to the worship of power. It just goes again, I'm just going to take you right through it real quick. So like the Magi... Herod asks about the king of the Jews, right? They ask first, then Herod calls together all the teachers and says, all right, where's where's this going to happen? And then um, that's his his question. He says, where's the Messiah to be born? And what's the response? Bethlehem, Bethlehem, right? And they quote, they even quote the passage. There it is. So there's a similarity between Herod and the Magi, but but we're going to find out that that really contrasts. The Magi asked the question openly. Um, there was no need to hide. They just walked right into Jerusalem and said, hey, where's King the Jews going to be born? Right? How does Herod ask the Magi for more information? Did you pick up Bobby, the language there? <laughs> he says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly, right? He's already kind of doing this in a sly sort of way. Why? Why did he want to know exactly when they saw the star appear? What's he trying to do? Get rid of the child. And what is, how does that help him get rid of the child? By knowing exactly where the child is. And the age, yeah. right? If he knows when the star showed up, it's like, okay, he's going to be within this age range. Why? What does he want to do? Take out the child, retain power, right? Yeah. Okay. So there's this contrast again between the two. And then finally, Herod, like the Magi, says he wanted to worship him. Did you catch that part too? Yeah. He says, yeah, tell me so I can worship him. We got enough information by that part of the story to know that's not what he's after, right? That's not the kind of worship. He wants to worship power, not worship Christ. So as this story develops, and I encourage you to read it at home later, but just watch how, how worship is portrayed in contrast. Here's the Magi, here's Herod. They do similar things, but very different motives. And it takes us through that. Power. The worship of power. Have you ever known anybody that that's really their all-consuming desire? Is they really want more power? And when we want power, that begins to motivate us. It's why we get up in the morning. Um, And the interesting thing is it's not just the King Herod's in the world. Because I don't know if you've seen that dynamic in, in the way our world works. But it's like there are people who don't have power who are mad at the people that do have power. But the problem is that the people that are mad at the people that do have power want power themselves and so they worship power as well. Yes, these people have the power and want to keep it but these people don't have the power and they want to get it. And so together they are bowing down and allowing that search for power to shape who they are, how they relate, how they interact with people, all those kinds of things. They're both worshipping power. Now... The good news is we don't really have any issues with power in this country today, right? (laughs) You see, whatever side you're on, I'm not picking a side in this, and I want you to hear that. The point I'm making transcends sides. Whatever side you're on... We are caught up in a massive power struggle in our country, so much so that everything in public life trains us to choose a side, to distrust the other side as a threat to our existence, maybe even to hate them, exclude them, want them to not be in the country anymore. And you know, the funny thing I thought about is that Christians used to be the ones that like had the corner on the market of apocalyptic thought, Right? We had the whole left-behind deal, you know, end-of-the-world scenario. But these days, it's like the political has taken over as far as the sky-is-falling theme. It's constant. It changes all the time. I don't know how many different sky-is-falling things I've heard just in the last few years. Chicken Little is everywhere in the (laughs) 24-7 news cycle. And this... Public power struggle has really played havoc in our private lives, hasn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but it's kind of tough sometimes to get together with friends or with family, with others, and talk about any of those issues. Because they're so divisive right now, they're just such a problem. It, it, it's pushed us back from our relationships with other people to the point that it's hard to just walk into a relationship with somebody with hands, you know, arms wide open. Instead, you've got to be guarded. You know, I don't, okay, what can I say with this person? Can I say anything? Better not to say a word. What do I do? How do I work this out? You see, the worship of power leaves all kinds of broken relationships in its wake. It hinders relationships, it makes them more shallow. Community is much harder to build. Even in our passage, how does the passage end? And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. End of story. But the good news, brothers and sisters, is that the worship of power is nothing new. Even better is the news that there's another way to live, there's another way to worship. We don't have to play the game that there is so much social conditioning to play in this country. And 2019, I mean, does anybody think it's going to end this year? No, it's going to take us through, so we need to get ready for it. In our lives, as in our passage, the worship of power, though, is nothing more than the backdrop, the stage upon which true worship occurs. Okay, It's not like, oh no, we're in this situation, I'm not going to be able to worship. What this passage shows us, all that's just the backdrop to what God actually wants to do in our lives It's the contrast that shows how important Christian worship truly is. Because what we find out in this passage is that it's not Herod. It's not Jerusalem. It's not the people in power that are free. The Magi, they're the ones in this passage that are truly free. So let's talk application just a minute.
1: What do you notice
0: about the way that the Magi worship? When they finally get there and see Jesus in the manger, what do they do? Anybody remember? We've, we've read the story enough. Yeah, they bow down and they give gifts, right? You see, true worship is not about grabbing hold or trying to keep Or trying to get more. True worship is about giving. About generosity. One of the values of this congregation. That's central to true worship. And the interesting thing to notice is that the gift giving doesn't start with the magi, does it? How does the story begin? They see a star in the sky that tells them they need to go there, right? A gift from God. It starts with a gift from God, that gift is received, then those that have received the gift, the magi, give to others, then as others receive, guess what? They're blessed and they give to others as well. You see, this worship, this true Christian worship, is much more powerful than power, if I can say it that way. It's much more influential, maybe that's a better way. It has more potential to bring change. And it's about receiving the gift and then giving to others. So three things, three applications. All right. The first one is we've all got to learn in 2019 to learn how to feed ourselves spiritually. Anybody? What's what's one way you felt like I fed myself spiritually with this method or that one? Anybody? Being here this morning. Being here this morning. What else? Scripture and prayer. Sorry? And prayer. Scripture and prayer. I mean, that if you want to look through all of Christian history, that's there all the time. So, Scripture and prayer, regular basis, that's a way to feed yourself. Now, let me just hone it in a little bit, though. The key point is, do you recognize God's gift to you in Jesus Christ? Is there a lot of people that try to do Christianity as a works thing? Well, if I read Scripture and prayer every day, I'm going to be a good Christian. God's going to love me that's not going to result in true worship. That, that's really legalistic and it, it just messes with you. But if you start by saying, I need to understand God's gift to me, the grace of God, that's the motive for true worship. That's what we respond to when we're worshiping God. A couple of books just want to mention to you that I think are helpful in this Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace? Anybody ever read that? came out a while back, but I still think it's a powerful one to help us get into our hearts the idea of what God's grace means. It's crazy what it means, and there is nothing else like it in this world, but we need to own that gift. Yes, God, thank you, and let it be the motive in our hearts. A second book is one you may have heard of. It's uh, called the book of Galatians. That one may be a little tougher read for some of us, but prayerfully read that, that letter of Paul, because it it talks so much about grace and God uses that to help us to understand that our whole faith, our whole life starts with a gift from God to us and our whole life is a response to that gift of God. You see, if we all learn to feed ourselves spiritually, then the second thing can happen and that is that we can come to church ready to give. It's common for people to say that I go to church to be fed, right? It's as if I can't feed myself, so I go throughout the week struggling, and then I come to church, and dog on it, it better be a good sermon because I need to be fed, right? But brothers and sisters, if we can learn to feed ourselves In our everyday lives, if we can learn to study the scriptures and pray and worship and do all of these things ourselves or with our families, then worship can become something different. I was reminded of this when I was in uh, Mozambique. This is a Presbyterian church in Mozambique, and they're worshiping. Celebration. You see, suddenly worship isn't like, man, I am dying for something. Give me something to eat, Rob. Instead, it's like, hey, I have been walking with the Lord all week. I am fed, and I am ready to come to church and to celebrate, and I'm ready to come to church and to give because I have received all that I will ever need in Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference there? You see, as a church, then we can begin to really focus together in our worship on giving back to God because God has given everything to us. So if we learn to feed ourselves spiritually, then we come to church ready to give, then, then the giving and receiving of gifts can begin to overflow from our lives into the lives of others. Our churches can become fully funded because we give because God has given so much to us. We give because we expect God to give in return because that's the nature of the relationship. If we move in this direction, then the pastor and the leadership can begin to shift their focus even more toward the ministry to others. And I think that's something you guys probably have a lot less Uh, uh, than some of the congregations I'm working with right now that are really struggling. But I think we can always reduce the amount of time we're spending just trying to get ourselves off the ground and increase the amount of time that we're out in the community giving, loving, worshiping in, in our deeds toward others in the name of Jesus Christ. And if we feed ourselves, if we come to church to give, then we're going to be able to have that overflow, not just in what we do together, but what each one of us does in our everyday lives 24-7. Brothers and sisters, this is a, a, such a critical part of Christianity because in this society we live in in 2019, a lot of churches tend to kind of circle the wagons, right? It's like, man, we got to hide here because that is just craziness out there. But we can't do that as followers of Jesus Christ. We cannot circle the wagons we have to be out there with others why because we have the good news that can make such a huge difference in other people's lives especially in 2019 as all of the power struggles are going to continue probably what for at least two years three years four years right we're stuck in this mode for a while but if we as followers of christ are truly worshiping christ not worshiping power god can use that for just to change all sorts of things. Here's a little video clip that demonstrates this so well. I just wanted to show you this, share this with you, and then we'll close our time together. This isn't rocket science. You don't have to worry about having a degree or a certain level of whatever. You know, true Christian worship is just about being thankful for what God has given you in Jesus Christ and as a result, giving to others. That's all it is. It's very simple and it can happen in multiple ways. But the power of those acts, as this video clip shows, it spreads. It spreads in a way that helps humanity to start to become the best of what we are. And so what I would urge you as we move into 2019, knowing that there's going to be all sorts of forces that are trying to shape us into the worship of power and choosing sides and hating the other, I'd urge you to commit yourself to the cultivation of Christian worship in your life. Because as we do that this year, that's going to help us all to move more and more toward a life like Joy Tensley, with the hands open and move us further and further away from those clenched fists that seem to grow and develop in so many lives as they go through the hardships of life. You see, we, like the Magi, can make a real difference in the world if we truly worship God. Amen?